0: Now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter five as we continue our study of Matthew's gospel and the Sermon on the Mount. Hear the words of Jesus. Again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, that I might speak with articulate words and articulate thoughts, that we would be guided into truth by your spirit. Open our ears, open our hearts, deliver us from distraction, deliver us from every error we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. But you promised, have you ever heard that complaint, that plea from the back seat of the car from a little person, but you promised that after we went to the grocery store, we would get ice cream. And then you find yourself defending your integrity and your honor and say, no, I didn't promise I said, we'll see. That was not a promise. We'll see. We've got a lot of errands to run, and I didn't make any promises. We'll try to go later. But in the mind of your child, any indication that something fun might happen is the foundation of hope. They craft these great castles of expectation out of a splinter of an intention that you may have dropped. And they build their whole hopes on that. So then you learn to speak in clear terms with your children. If you're asked to do something fun, you say, well, I'm not making any promises. But if everything goes according to plan, we might. We'll see how it goes. And your kid gets good at reading the codes. My kids knew that maybe meant... There's a solid 50-50 shot. There's a chance that this might happen. If I said, we'll see, yeah, then it's not happening. It's not going to happen. Uh, But if I said, yes, well, you can bank on it. I'll do everything in my power to make that happen for you. Because I do take actual promises seriously, even when I make them to my children. Especially when I make them to my children, I take those promises seriously. And as followers of the Lord Jesus, we commit ourselves to promise keeping. Because we're always preaching. All of our actions are preaching about who the triune God is. What is he like? Well, you ought to be able to look at his people and be able to determine from his people what he is like. And our God is a God who makes promises and who keeps promises. Our God enters into covenants with his people and he's faithful to keep those covenants. God binds himself to us. And so his people must be those who enter into covenants with the intention of keeping them. We don't go into agreements with our fingers crossed. We don't look for loopholes for how we're going to get out of this, how we're going to get out of our agreements when we change our mind and we don't want to keep them anymore. We don't make empty promises that we never intend to keep, and we don't treat vows as if they're just nice words that really don't mean anything. They're not binding in any sense. In our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we have just heard Jesus' instruction on promise-keeping, on covenant-keeping in marriage. And we've heard his warnings against adultery and fornication and all manner of sexual sins which break the covenant, which sins against the covenant. And, And we've heard his exhortation to keep the covenant of marriage. Now he proceeds from there to talk about oaths and vows in general. And he has several more pointed, blunt corrections of Israel's habits regarding oath-making. So much of what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount is direct, it's forceful, it's black and white, there are no qualifications, there are no exceptions, and so it can come across to us as very extreme and radical, and some may even say, that's over the top. Does he really mean that? We saw this first with the commandment to leave your gift at the altar if you have something between you and your brother. I reminded you that these people he's talking to here live in Galilee. If they go all the way down to Jerusalem and make it all the way into the temple and they get there with their gift, with their sacrifice for the altar... And there they remember that they have an unresolved offense with their brother. They have to leave their gift there and go back out of the temple and go all the way back up to Galilee, make it right, and then come all the way back down. Jesus knows what he's asking of them when he says that. That's how serious he takes that. He's not taking it lightly. And then he says, if you fail to make peace with your brother, you're probably going to end up in jail. If you call your brother worthless, you are in danger of hellfire. He deliberately turns up the heat, literally, on this conversation. And after that, he talks about plucking out your eye or cutting off your hand if they cause you to sin. And while we don't believe that he's literally talking about self-mutilation, he's not commending self-mutilation, okay, well, what is he saying? Why does Jesus speak in this blunt way here? And yet, in other places, we get more fleshed out arguments that look at every side of the issue. And we saw this last week where he gives these very clear pronouncements about uh, divorce and adultery. And then uh, we saw, well, let's take the whole council of scripture and we'll see how Paul, for example, unpacks that and, and looks at it from a few different angles. Is Paul in disagreement with Jesus? Is Paul contradicting Jesus? Is Jesus contradicting his own father's law? Well, the answer to all those questions is no. Jesus does not contradict himself. His word does not contradict his other words. The law and the epistles and the gospels are all in harmony with each other. And so we need to reconcile this without watering down Jesus's message. Well, the force of Jesus's words here are an indication of the spiritual condition of Israel at the time that he's speaking to them. We'll see, we see this throughout the Gospels, and we see this throughout the book of Acts. We see the true character of those who are charged with keeping God's law, the so-called keepers of the law, the scribes and Pharisees. We see their true character. We see that they're murderous. They are hateful, they are lustful, they are adulterous. They have polluted the land with divorce and fornication. And on top of that, their sins, which stink to high heaven, are sprayed with this Lysol of self-righteousness. In spite of this disgusting behavior, they walk around as proud, hard-hearted, stiff-necked, judgmental, people as if they have a right to do what they do and and bind heavy burdens on their followers, which which they also do. And so Jesus comes at the Sermon on the Mount with these wrecking ball statements to smash their pride, to humble them, to rip up their consciences, to call them to repentance. And he looks at his people in the eye and he says, don't act like them. Don't act like those people who parade around in their pageantry of self righteousness. You don't be like them. Your righteousness must exceed theirs. It reminds me of Flannery O'Connor and her explanation when people would write to her and ask her, Why are your stories so grotesque? And why are they so violent? And by that, that's how they all sound, right? If that's what your complaint is against Flannery O'Connor, that's how you sound. I'm joking. Are y'all okay? Is everything right? <laughs> Why, why are your stories so violent? Well, she answered them. She said, when you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs you do, you can relax and use more normal means of talking to it. When you have to assume that it does not, when your audience's uh, uh, beliefs are not the same as yours, when you assume it does not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing, you shout. And to the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is drawing large and startling figures. The Sermon on the Mount is deliberately shocking. Jesus is shouting at deaf men here. That's why he uses the kind of language that he does. And we would do the very same thing today. If you have a problem with drunkenness and abusing alcohol and you just lost your job because you uh, just got your third DUI and you come to me and we have a conversation about this, we're not going to have a soft, nuanced discussion about the symbolism of wine in the Bible or the use of wine in redemptive history. Uh, You're you're not going to get a discussion on the proper use of wine generally. Um, what you're going to hear is something like this. You need to go home and pour it all down the drain right now. You need to throw it all away. This is not part of your life anymore. You need to get rid of it. Cut it out. Cut it off. Stop drinking. That situation calls for hard Pointed, unqualified statements. You can't control yourself, so you must cut this off. This is not part of your life anymore. This is out of your life. Pour it out and don't drink until you have established a solid record of self-control, and that might take many years. And later we can have a conversation about, you know, the great Uh, uh, place of wine in redemptive history and other uses and and other ways of thinking about it, but not when we're in a crisis. That's not what we're going to do. We're going to stop. And that's what Jesus is doing here. See what Jesus is saying and what he's, what he's giving this generation and what this audience uh, is getting is what they need, And what they need is a savior. What they need is a teacher, a messiah who will come and take a big step away from where the scribes and the Pharisees are leading them. He takes a huge step to the right of what the Pharisees and scribes were teaching. In other words, I want to get this straight. I'm not one of them. I'm not going to lead you where they're leading you. I'm not going to teach you the way they're teaching you. I'm not going to be a hypocrite the way they are. I'm not going to bind your conscience with heavy burdens that I myself don't bear. I'm not going to give you these piles of ordinances that just create these loopholes for you to sin in all the ways you're already good at sinning. I'm not going to give you little laws that are easy to keep while ignoring and despising God's capital L law. I'm not going to do things where it makes it easy to look self-righteous while despising God's law. That's not who I am. Get it clear. That's why I'm teaching you this way. And so that's what, that's what th- this tone of the Sermon on the Mount, that's where it's coming from. And that's why it's so refreshing. When people hear Jesus, they say, wow, he's got an authority unlike anything that we've ever heard. And so now he continues and he makes a direct succinct, unqualified statement on oaths. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. And there he's quoting part of Deuteronomy. He's quoting Ecclesiastes. He's quoting other places where God says, keep your promises as he's done in other places. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all. Stop it, no swearing. Uh, complete prohibition. Now, what was going on at the time that precipitated this kind of absolute prohibition? Well, the Jewish historian, the philosopher Philo, who lived at that time, he commented on the Jewish habits around swearing in his day. And he wrote, there are some who without even any gain in prospect have an evil habit of swearing incessantly and thoughtlessly about ordinary matters where there's nothing at all in dispute, filling up the gaps in their talk with oaths, forgetting that it were better to have their words cut short or rather to be silenced altogether. They believe that the continual repetition of a string of oaths will secure them their object. Other sources comment on the frivolous habit of swearing, where it was common to introduce a statement with words like, by your life, by your life, that donkey is three years old, or, or by my head, I promise you that I will deliver those bricks next Wednesday, or may I never see the comfort of Israel if that, if that is not, not pure silver. Um, That's the kind. They would just pepper their promises with these with these kinds of oaths. I I think we used to do these things on the playground. We'd say, um, you know, cross my heart and hope to die, or we'd say things like, on my mother's grave, I promise you that was a strike or that was a ball, or we'd say things like, on scout's honor, I'll I'll bring your comics back tomorrow. Um, It doesn't mean anything at all. None of that means anything at all. It doesn't add any real weight to what you are saying. It doesn't none of it proves that you are in fact telling the truth and it smacks of trying too hard to prove your point. What what are they going to do to your mother's grave if you're lying? And by the way, on the on the playground, I mean everybody's mothers were living. So I don't understand why you would say on my mother's grave, I promise or I swear what happens to your mother's grave if you're telling a lie? It's empty. It doesn't mean anything. And that's the kind of practice that was going on in Israel, except they were swearing by the altar, and they were swearing by the gold on the altar, and they were swearing by the temple, and the gold of the temple. Beyond that, the first century Jewish custom also made a distinction between oaths that were binding and oaths that were not. So they thought any oath that names the name of God was absolutely binding, and any oath that evaded the name of God was not binding. So if a man invoked God's name over an oath, well, then he would rigidly keep it. But if he swore by heaven, or if he swore by earth, or if he swore by Jerusalem, or if he swore by his head, he would feel free to break That oath. And so there was a fine art in making these strong sounding oaths, which then gave you an out if you didn't want to keep them. Imagine expecting someone to keep their promise and reminding them, no, you swore to to be telling me the truth. You swore that you were going to do that. And they say, oh, well, I swore by the temple. I didn't swear by God, so you can't hold me to it. Uh, i, I didn 't really mean it you should have, you should have caught that i didn 't swear by god 's name. You should have caught that I only sweared or swore by heaven and not by god um, that, that sounds insane to us. How can you have a conversation? How can you trust anyone? This is so important that Jesus brings it up again in matthew twenty three in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is in Galilee, and he's speaking about the scribes and Pharisees. No doubt, there were probably some who heard what he was saying, but he's largely talking about them and about separating himself from what they're doing. Over in Matthew 23, he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees. And here's what he says uh, in Matthew 23, verse 16. He says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say... Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold of the temple that sanctifies the the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Which is greater? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Who can keep all of that straight? Who can say, oh, well, I swore by the altar, but not the gold of the altar. And so therefore you can't hold me to do what I said. And you're thinking, I can't even remember. What are you saying? Oh, what did you swear by? Uh, See, what they're doing is playing games with the truth instead of just telling the truth. Uh, they're providing themselves with all of these outs and with all of these uh, extraneous uh, adornments of language that don't help us get to the truth. And this is why Jesus says, cut it out. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Stop swearing by things. Don't think that because you swear by a created thing, that you're off the hook. No, if you promise to do something or if you state something is true, God holds you accountable to keep your word no matter what you swore by. Swearing by things doesn't get you out from God's expectation and authority. And so Jesus says, don't swear by heaven. That's God's throne. Don't swear by earth. That's his footstool. Don't swear by Jerusalem. That's the city of the king. Don't even swear by your own head because that belongs to God too. He knows the numbers of hairs on your head and he can make them black and he can make them white. There's nothing in the whole world that doesn't belong to God. And so whether you actually invoke God's name or not, it doesn't matter because God has jurisdiction over the whole world. And all of your lies and all of your empty promises are under his judgment it's like they were trying to divide the world into compartments where God is involved over here because we named his name. It's almost like this uh, uh, superstitious belief that if we name his name, then we get his attention and suddenly he cares about what's over here. But we didn't name his name over here and so we have this compartmentalized uh, reality over here where God God doesn't care. He's not involved. God rules here, but he doesn't care about what happens over here uh, because we didn't invoke his name. Well, that's just absolutely false. We don't, that's, that God rules everywhere. God sees everything. God hears and knows everything. So we don't invite God's presence into certain parts of life as if we can keep him out of others. He doesn't just hear the promises made in his name and keep you accountable to them. He hears all the words. But this was the kind of dualism that the Jews were living with. So how should we read and how should we apply Jesus's instruction here? Is this a blanket prohibition on all oaths, on all vows for all time? There are some splinter groups and there are some cults like the Quakers and maybe some others. They they will say, yes, this is an absolute prohibition on all oaths and vows. This is a blanket prohibition. They won't swear to tell the truth in court. Uh, I, th- I think they won't take other vows, for example. Um, but obviously that's not our practice. You heard this morning, we ask you to take membership vows and we take those seriously. Uh, we ask baptismal vows. We'll, we, we, uh, we've taken ordination vows. All the church officers have taken ordination vows, promises that we're going to do certain things. And if we don't do these things then we're accountable to God, we uh, make marriage vows, and those are good things. Those are binding. We want you to keep your marriage vows. We hold you and, uh, accountable to your marriage vows, and we expect you to keep those as well. And so, and so what do we do with Jesus' um, words about don't swear, don't swear at all? Uh, well, how, what, what, why would we do that in light of what Jesus says? Well, one attempt to sort this out is to make a distinction between oaths and vows. So a vow is a promise to do something. I vow, I promise to be your wedded husband in sickness and in health. Um, Remember, Hannah vowed that if the Lord gave her a son that she would give him back to the tabernacle. She would dedicate him to the service of God. That's a vow. An oath is to call God or something else to witness to the truth of your statement. You might say, as God is my witness, I'm going to go to the gym on Monday. Or, um, uh, uh, or I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. You're invoking God's Uh, authority and accountability and may God hold me in judgment. May God uh, hold me in contempt if I don't do that thing. And so maybe a way to understand it is to say, well, Jesus is only talking about oaths. He's not talking about vows. I'm not sure that's an entirely, uh, that doesn't resolve everything. Maybe it's helpful to know the difference between a vow and an oath, but We do pray that God would help us to keep our vows. And so even when we make a vow, we call on God's help and protection over our covenants. So again, maybe there's a fine distinction between oaths and vows, but but how does that help us understand what Jesus says when he says no oaths? When oaths are all over scripture, The law does not say, and Jesus quotes it, God's law does not say don't swear. God's law does say don't swear falsely and do perform your oaths. Keep your word. And Jesus comes to this generation and he says, just stop taking oaths altogether. Well, is that absolute? Jesus himself will come under an oath on his trial uh, before the high priest in Matthew 26 Jesus was silent until the high priest said, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And as Jesus is silent up to that point, but when the high priest puts him under an oath, that's when Jesus speaks and says, it is as you said. God himself takes oaths. In Luke chapter one, verse 78, Zechariah's song references the oath that God swore to Abraham. And Hebrews chapter six tells us more about that oath that God swore to Abraham. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all disputes. So there the author of Hebrews says, uh, among honest men, an oath is an end to a dispute. If you say, as God is my witness, as a faithful, honest man, that's the end. Yeah, we trust you. We know that you are calling God to uh, get, uh, make you and keep you accountable. But the uh, the author of Hebrews continues. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. So what the author of Hebrews is saying that our consolation is... That the God who doesn't lie has sworn by himself. We will swear to a higher authority. May that hold me accountable. Well, God, there's nobody higher than God. And so who can God swear by but himself? He, to, to swear by his own name, his own integrity is on the line, his own faithfulness is on the line, and he doesn't fail us. And then God invites his people to swear by his name. He says in Deuteronomy, don't swear by the false gods. They can't hold you accountable. Swear by the God of truth. In Deuteronomy chapter six, he says, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. So God commands his people, take oaths in my name, promise, make promises by my name. The mighty angel in Revelation 10 swears by God, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be a delay no longer. So the angel doesn't swear by heaven. He swears by the creator of heaven. He doesn't swear by earth. He swears by the creator, not by the sea. He doesn't swear by the sea. He swears by the, the one who created that. And he says, the things that I'm saying are true. And the angel even swears by God. Paul, the apostle Paul took oaths. In Romans 1, he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. In Galatians 1, Paul says, Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. He's calling God to keep him accountable to his his truth. In 2 Corinthians 1, he calls God as his witness to testify of the truth of why he didn't return to Corinth. So if we take the position that all oaths are absolutely prohibited by Jesus, then how do we view the actions of God himself or Jesus or the angels or uh, Paul or the other faithful saints? We didn't even get into the oaths of Abraham and David. Uh, Faithful men take vows and they keep them. So, so what is the instruction of Jesus? What, what is the way forward to understand this? How do we apply this? Well, the first application seems pretty obvious. If you're like a Pharisee who lacks self-discipline with your tongue, if you make all kinds of claims and boasts, if you swear by everything in heaven and in earth, if you put yourself up as this great authority, if you make big promises and deliver on none of them, then what you must do is close your mouth. You must stop making promises. Stop making promises you can't keep. Stop making claims that you can't back up. Stop making predictions that are never going to happen. Just stop. Manipulators and bullies do this a lot. They're always making grand promises about what's going to happen one day. It's the way to keep you destabilized. It's the way to keep you always looking for the next big day. Everything's going to be fine one day, just not today. Today, everything's pretty bad, but, but one day it's going to get better. They're always making these big promises about what's going to happen, and they play with people's hopes. If you do that, stop it. Don't Take any vows and don't make any promises and don't make any predictions because you can't keep any of them. Don't. If someone asks you a yes or no question, give them a yes or no answer. Don't embellish. Don't exaggerate. Don't keep talking. Yes. No. This is not a small issue for Christians because if this describes you, you are a bad representative of a covenant-keeping God. Remember, our actions are always preaching about who God is. Uh, Preach with your behavior and with your words that you follow and serve a promise-keeping God. Another thing to consider is that every one of these good vows, every one of these good oaths in scripture that I just listed by the angel and by Jesus, and by God and by Paul and the others, every one of those vows, they're sober, they're weighty, they're meaningful. These are not empty, vain words spoken in the heat of the moment. None of them are swearing by Jerusalem. None of them are swearing by the gold on the altar, the altar, the gift on the altar. Uh, none of them are saying, you know, Scott's out honor or, or uh, by my mother's uh, grave. I swear on my mother's grave. Uh, the, none of these are cheap promises. So we don't make cheap promises. We don't enter into verbal or written agreements without full intent and commitment to keep our word. Don't use tricky or deliberately deceptive language in your agreements that will give you loopholes later because you know the other person is not listening or you're taking advantage of their understanding of certain phrases. Don't exaggerate, don't embellish, don't overstate your case. I swear by all things good and holy that this is true. Why do you need to do that? Why do you need to say that? Are, are you the kind of person who has to say that in order to get people to believe you because your reputation is you're otherwise loose with the facts? You, you kind of exaggerate and embellish and people know that, so you have to swear? Just commit. Commit to plain speech. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be No. We don't need to embellish. The truth is the truth. You don't need to get wildly emotional about it or or make bombastic claims. Just state the facts. And when you swear and when you make a vow and when you enter into an agreement, keep your commitment, even if something better comes along or you just don't feel like doing the thing that you said that you would do. I read this last week. I'm going to read it again. Psalm 15. Yahweh, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. If I make a commitment to you, I have bound myself to you to do what I said I would do. I am promising you that I'm going to be on time. I'm going to be prepared to do the thing that I said I was going to do for you. And I'm going to keep my word to you. Yeah, crazy things happen. Things come up. Uh, 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 Accidents happen. But more often than not, when we fail to keep our word, it's because we haven't planned well. It's because we haven't taken our commitments seriously. We don't take each other's time seriously. If you make a commitment to me or I make a commitment to you, that's on the calendar. And my saying yes to you is me saying no to everybody else and everything else that wants that time. And And if you take advantage or abuse that time or, or, or don't keep your commitment to me, then I then have also missed out on opportunities to keep commitments to other people. Um, we, we must be a people who can trust each other. Nothing ruins your reputation more quickly than being undependable, being always late, being never prepared. Keep covenant, keep your promises. I started talking off about, ch- uh, I started um, off talking about children and that's where I want to end because none of us wants to raise these sneaky little Pharisees. Uh, so we must keep our commitments to them. We don't, we don't want to raise these little people who are always playing with words and always, always um, uh, exaggerating or saying, uh, let, me, let me try to say this or massage this way into a way that we can deceive you. Uh, we don't want to raise people like that. And so it begins with us keeping our commitments to them. Can your children count on what you say or not? Can they? Well, yes. If your yes is yes, if you make a promise and keep it and you have built that confidence into them, that they can trust you, that you've told them we're going to do good things and you do it. Or if we don't do this, here's what's going to happen and it happens. And if your yes is always yes, then your no can be no. No is not an invitation to debate. (laughs) No is not, here, bring me all your reasons for why you think that I'm wrong about saying no. You ought to be able to say no once. That's it. No, and that's the end of the conversation. That's the end of the story. Dad's no is not an invitation to see if we can go get a yes out of mom. Parents back each other up. That if dad says no, it's no. It's no now. It's no until the end of the day. Maybe we'll have another conversation later. Maybe there's other information that we hadn't considered. But you know what? Until we talk, without you in the room, little child, dear child, the no is no. You're going to be okay if you don't go to the uh, pizza roller skate thing or the Chuck E. Cheese thing. You're going to live. I promise. You're going to live. But for right now, it's no. If mom says no, it's no. Back her up. You cut off the branch that you're sitting on if you're undermining each other's authority. Let your no be no and back each other up. A well-trained child, a well-loved child is one who accepts no from mom or dad the first time and just says, okay, dad, thank you, mom. I asked the question, I got my answer, and I'm going to go do what I'm supposed to do without wailing, without pitching a fit, without throwing myself on the ground and creating havoc. Uh, it's a beautiful thing, a child they can just hear the word no, and it doesn't ruin everybody's day. They just know, okay, thank you, dad, thank you, because that child is so beautiful, because that's a child who knows that when dad speaks, the matter is settled, When mom says yes or no, that's it. It's a kid who understands that no means no. And they're a kid who's been trained that yes means yes. There's a stability there. And that's a kid who is being taught to trust in God ultimately and his truth. They're being trained that when God says yes, it is yes. And when God says no, that means no. It comes down to this in the end. Does language matter or not? Does it matter or not? Do words carry any weight? Do they carry any meaning? When you commit to do something, when you promise to do something, can we trust it or not? Can we depend on what anyone says or is it all just hot air? For the people of our generation, the people of our age, words don't matter. There's no such thing as truth. Truth doesn't matter. Oaths are irrelevant. Nobody thinks about what they pledge or what they vow, what they're saying. It's just empty words without meaning. All that matters to them is not truth. What matters to them is power and using words in a manipulative way to destabilize society rather than build it up. They destabilize society through constantly changing words and manipulating words and rules about words over what you can say and what you can't. But there's no such thing as objective truth. And so words don't matter. Facts don't matter. All that matters is how you feel. Truth is subjected to feeling. And so if words don't matter, then we're all just enslaved to the feelings of people who can't think. We're we're enslaved to the feelings of the most undisciplined people in our society. But for followers of Jesus, words do matter. God created the cosmos by his words. Jesus is the word. He speaks words that give us life, words that instruct us in obedience and faithfulness. And so we are a people of the word. We keep covenant. We speak God's truth to each other. And we don't erode the bonds of society and fellowship and friendship and brotherhood. We don't erode the bonds of society with empty vows. So speak the truth. Make good promises and keep them take holy vows and be faithful to the covenant. Let's pray. Father in heaven, once again, we thank you for the words of your son, our savior, Jesus. We ask you to give us your spirit so that we might be faithful to do them, to be faithful every day, to teach by our words and our actions about our covenant keeping God. We ask you to guide us in this in Jesus name. Amen.